So would you bless that family, God? And we ask you to recall them to our minds this week that we might keep praying for them, keep remembering them. And uh, we look forward to how you're going to answer these prayers that um, an abundance of thanksgiving might, might erupt to you from your people. God, as we turn our hearts now to your word, we pray that you would speak to us. Give us hearts and minds and ears to hear, understand, and uh, help us to believe whatever you say. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Second Peter, chapter one, verses three through eight. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. Would you bow your head with me one more time? I want to ask for God's help as we study his word. I'll give you a moment first just where you are to quiet your heart and ask the Holy Spirit to help you to hear his word with an attentive mind and a moldable heart this morning. Lord, we do thank you that as we sung a moment ago and as we reflected on at length last week, you are a God who keeps promises, including the promise that your word does not return void. So we claim that promise now and ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to hear the word with ears of faith, with hearts of humility, with attentive minds. Lord, would you bring grace to really encourage our hearts today? I'm asking for encouragement that you would inspire us and renew our zeal to trust Jesus and abide in his love. Help me, Lord, that, pray that every word that I speak would be true and accurate and faithful and empowered by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, for the last five weeks, we've been studying the theme of God's love, and really we've been hovering around two phrases. The first phrase is the phrase, God is love. So everybody say, God is love. And we've been reflecting, especially on that one. We've been studying the Psalms and the Gospels, looking at the life of Jesus to help us think more deeply about the height and depth and breadth of God's love as it's been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. He loves us more than we've imagined, more than we're capable of comprehending. He's more committed to your joy and life and flourishing than you are. 
And he knows us better than we know ourselves. And he has infinite power with which he is at work always to give us the endless joy of life with him and the new creation. Isn't God good? We've spent a little bit of time on the second phrase, which is this one. Everybody say, abide in love. Now, this is talking about our response. In fact, we could sum up the whole Christian life with this phrase, abide in love. And both of those phrases come from 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. I'm going to read you that verse. We read it five weeks ago. But I want to read it to you again today so that it can set the tone as we begin to think about 2 Peter chapter 1. If you've got a Bible, you can flip over there. Otherwise, you can just listen. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says this. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Today, we're really focusing on that second phrase, abide in love, and asking what does it mean for us as a people to abide in love? And the first thing to say is that if you're a Christian, you've already started to abide in God's love. Abiding in love means trusting God's love. It means resting in God's love. It means surrendering to God's love. And when you became a Christian, if you are a Christian, then you trusted in Jesus. You said, I'm a sinner. I need grace. You showed your love by dying on the cross for me and rising again. Now I'm trusting you to forgive my sin and be Lord and Savior of my life. And that was the beginning of abiding in love. If you're here today and you're spiritually seeking, that's the first step to abiding in God's love. Trust in Christ. But that's not the last step. Because learning to abide in love is really a lifetime's work. We spend our whole life learning to surrender more completely to God's love. To rest more fully in God's love. And the great Christian role models, whom we admire so much from history, are people who learned to surrender their lives consistently in an unusual degree to God's love, so that God's love began to radiate from their lives to bless other people. Think for just a moment about some of the heroes of the faith whose stories we have told at Christ Community Church over the last three or four years. Many of these people were not particularly great communicators. A lot of them weren't great writers. A lot of them weren't great leaders. Some of them were. Some of them had those spiritual gifts. Thank God for that. But what unites all of them is they came to know Jesus in a way that his, his love filled their minds and hearts. They rested in his love. They surrendered to his love in a way that caused them to live ordinary life in really extraordinary ways. Think about people like Corey Ten Boom. We've told her story. You remember Corey Ten Boom? She chose in the midst of the darkness of the Nazi regime, instead of protecting herself, she and her family chose to hide Jews to protect them from the Nazis, knowing the risks. And then, in fact, when they were caught and sent to concentration camps, and she watched her sister die, and she herself suffered greatly, she continued to abide in the love of God such that the grace and the love of God gave her great power that even had redemptive potential in the lives of those who were persecuting her. 
so that she could forgive her Nazi persecutors and they could repent. Or think about John Perkins. We told his story a lot. He's like a spiritual grandfather for us at Christ Community Church. But part of what makes John Perkins' story so powerful is not his gifts, though he's gifted. It's that when he grew up in the midst of sweltering racism in the deep south and then watched his brother be killed by that racism and then watched so many family members suffer and then he got out and made it to the west coast where he began to thrive in every way, Christ found him there. And instead of running away from that racism that had so marred his early life, he ran back to it. Knowing the risk and knowing the cost, he and Vera May His wife both did, and he did pay a great price. I mean, he was arrested wrongfully by racist police and tortured almost to death, and yet he kept loving. He kept trusting in Christ to be his deliverer. And because of that extraordinary love lived out in the circumstances of life, his witness has spread and has touched the lives of many. These people inspire us because they learned to abide in Jesus in such a way that their lives became like windows to heaven. When you look at their life, it's like, I can see Jesus, and I can see the beloved community that surrounds Jesus. And we get a little taste of what it would look like if heaven invaded our lives right now because they abided in love. Everybody say, abide in love. A life marked by deep abiding in God's love is a life of profound joy peace, wisdom, and spiritual power. It's a life of true security and spiritual flourishing that is blessed by God and that will certainly bring blessing to others. These are the great saints. This is Mother Antonia moving from the comfort and wealth of her life in California as an upper middle class woman to move into La Mesa prison in Juarez, Mexico because she saw Christ and the poorest of the poor who are suffering, and the most hardened criminals. This is the love that we tell stories about. And as you're sitting here listening to me talk, I can imagine, because I've been doing this for a while, at least three categories of listeners right now. You can see if you fit into one of these categories, or afterwards, if you're a fourth category, you can tell me about it. The inspired, the discouraged, and the skeptical and indifferent. The inspired are those who are hearing me talking right now and the Holy Spirit is doing something in your heart and you're thinking, man, I want to live like that. I want that freedom and that joy and that power to flow through me. That's the inspired. I hope you leave here further encouraged and inspired. There's the discouraged. That's those of you who hear that, but as you're listening, you're thinking those lives that you're describing feel so distant from my daily struggles, from my bad attitude, and you feel stuck. I know many times in my Christian life I've just felt stuck. I don't know if you've ever had the experience of you find an old journal and you open the old journal. Sometimes it's encouraging because you see things you were praying for and God answered your prayer, but sometimes I've had the experience of find an old journal and I'm writing down stuff I was struggling with from like 10 years ago. It's like, man, that's what I was struggling with yesterday. And you start to feel stuck. So some people feel discouraged. I pray that when you leave here today, you will have become the inspired. God's going to encourage you and give you new hope. There's also the skeptical and the indifferent. Those are the people who, when I'm talking, you're thinking, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) I've heard it all before. This is religious talk. I don't want to take a show of hands right now. Please don't raise your hand and tell me. But I know that there's people that you hear that. 
And I, I want to say to you, God loves you. And right now, if that's you, you hear those stories of a Corey Tim Boom or a John Perkins or a Mother Antonia or whatever, and you think, and I've heard all this religious rhetoric before, but what does that have to do with my real life? I want to just encourage you to pray for God to help you right now and to repent. Because a posture of skepticism is a posture of arrogance. It's a posture of imagining that we sit in a judgment seat over God's word and over God's saints. Imagining that we see more clearly when really the truth is just that our pride has blinded us from seeing reality. And the only way out of that is to humble yourself and ask God for grace. But what I really want to say is that all three, to all three categories of people, the verses we heard just a moment ago from Second Peter have a profound message for you today. Let me summarize it. Here's the message. It is really possible for you and me to learn how to abide completely in God's love so that the grace of Jesus radiates from our lives like it did from the lives of great saints in history. Mother Teresa inspired the world, not because she was so much smarter or such a better leader or a great communicator, but because she learned to abide in God's love. And what she said is true for us. What the world needs is not more great works, but more small works of great love. That's the way she lived. That's the way she inspired the world. And what we're saying, what Second Peter is saying, what God is saying through Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 8 is, that is possible for you. You can live that way. We can live that way. That's the word of encouragement today. And really, the text gives for us a twofold encouragement. If you want to take notes, I'm going to give you two little things you might write down to take away from 2 Peter 1, 3 through 8. The first encouragement is from verses 3 through 4. And I would summarize it, summarize it like this. God has made infinite resources available to empower your spiritual transformation so that there is nothing that can stop you from abiding completely in his love if you really want to do so. God has made infinite resources available to empower your spiritual transformation so that there is nothing that can stop you from abiding completely in his love if you really want to do that. That's what all verses 3 and 4 are about, but just look at the first half of verse 3 for a second. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You have been given by God everything that you need to abide in love. You can be one of those great saints. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, you can be a saint. That's what we're saying. Now, to hear that truth, you got to hear the second truth, which comes from verses 5 through 8. And here's what those verses teach. If you want to experience God's love in a deeper way than you do right now, you just need to practice. You just need to practice and keep practicing and keep practicing and keep practicing. So the title of my sermon today is Abiding Takes Practice. We might as well say that. Everybody say, Abiding Takes Practice. All the resources are given to you. That's verses 3 through 4. And now verse 5 starts by saying, make every effort. And as is going to become clear in a moment when we look at a little more, look a little more carefully at those verses, the every effort it's calling you to is not some big Herculean feat. What it's talking about is the everyday, ordinary Christian life, daily effort. See, I mentioned some people a moment ago, like Mother Antonia and Mother Teresa and John Perkins and Corey Ten Boom, all these people made some big life decisions and that's why we know their story. But the real story is not their big life decisions. The real story is 10,000 little decisions that they made. 
through which God graciously shaped their souls. And when we get to heaven, there's going to be thousands of people that we meet that are going to be the great ones in heaven that we've never heard their life stories, but they made those 10,000 little choices. So God's grace radiated through their lives in a way that touched the world and has touched many of us. That's what we can be like. Now let's look a little more closely at how I'm getting those two truth claims from the text. First one I gave you was this claim. God has made infinite resources available to empower your spiritual transformation. So there's nothing that can stop you from abiding completely in his love if you really want to do so. Look with me at verse 3. It said, God has strengthened you with divine power. You might underline those two words. And then later in the verse, it says, he has called you by his own glory and excellence. Actually, what it says in your bulletin is to his own glory and excellence, but it would be better translated by his own glory and excellence from the Greek. God has called you by his own glory and excellence. God has strengthened you with divine power. What does that mean? It means the resources that are available for your spiritual growth are infinite. So I can look around the room and single out every one of you. Why not Will? He's right there. What it means, Will, is that your ability to trust God's love and abide in God's love is not limited to Will's natural wisdom or Willpower, no pun intended. <laughs> Will's potential for abiding in God's love is in fact unlimited because it's fueled by divine power, by God's own glory and excellence. It's fueled by the infinite supernatural power of God, and that's true all the way around the room for Steph and for Ale, and I don't have time to name everybody, but you get the point. The resources available to you are infinite. Look at what verses 3 and 4 say God has already given you if you've trusted in Christ. Verse 3 says, He has already granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. You might underline those two words, all things, and then that word life and that word godliness. Think about what that means. It means everything... All resources that would be necessary for you to live a life that was just as mature and holy as Mother Teresa has already been given to you. You've got all the resources you need. Or look at the end of verse 4. It says, God has already liberated us from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. You were born with sinful passions and you were drowning in a swamp of your own sinful passions. But Jesus dove from heaven way down deep into the muddy water in which you were drowning, your own out-of-control sinful desires. And he went down, down deep into the muck of your sin and death and hell. And he grabbed hold of you and then shot out of that water like Superman. That's the death and resurrection of Jesus. He shot out to bring you with him, which means... The gospel says if you've trusted in Christ, you still have sinful desires, but Jesus has already defeated them so that indwelling sin does not have to determine the direction of your life. As a matter of fact, after Jesus rose from the grave, he sent out the Holy Spirit. Indwelling sin is a reality in your life, Christian, but the power of indwelling sin is finite and the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit is infinite. Do you hear that? You've already been set free from that slavery to sin. Look, look what else verse, verses 3 and 4 tell you. What are the resources God has given you? Well, verse 3 says, you've been granted everything you need through the knowledge of him who called you, which means resource number one is the knowledge of God. And don't just think 
knowledge about God. This is talking about relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So what it's saying is simply this. You, by grace, through Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit, can live every day in personal connection with God through prayer and through meditation on the Scriptures. And as you focus on knowing God, God will focus on making you more like Jesus. As you daily communicate and commune with him, he'll transform you. Or look again at verse 4. God has given you precious and very great promises. According to verse 4. That's one of the resources that's given you. We talked about this a lot last week. But you've got this resource where you can claim a promise. So you memorize, like last week we talked about John 6.40, where Jesus says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. And you claim that promise. Of course, claiming that promise doesn't work if you're not looking at Jesus and believing in him. But if you're persevering in a life of faith, looking at Jesus and believing in him, now you claim that promise and you know, one day I will rise with Christ and reign with him in a new heaven and a new earth. And that promise sustains you and empowers you. But the key thing here is God has already given you everything you need. For a life of holiness. So everybody, turn one more time. Tell your neighbor, say, you can be a saint. And of course, really what the New Testament teaches, if you've trusted Christ, you are a saint. But now you can live into that identity. But this leads us to the second key idea, which is in verses 5 through 8. If you want to experience God's love in a deeper way than you do right now, you just need to practice. Abiding takes practice. Look at verse 5. For this very reason, make every effort. For this very reason. What reason? God has already given you everything that you need. Now this is a balance that is consistently there when our New Testament teaches us about Christian growth. Let's do a pop quiz. I think we can get this right, everybody. In your Christian life, where does the power come from for growth and transformation? That's right. I heard Jesus. I heard God. The Holy Spirit is also acceptable. One God and three persons. It comes from God. God's infinite power. Does it happen automatically or do you need to participate? Participate, right? This is the the dynamic of Scripture. The infinite resources are there. We just need to take hold of them. And here it says, make every effort. There is not one person in the history of the world who has made every effort in humble dependence upon God's grace to grow holy and failed. I remember being challenged years ago reading a book by J. Oswald Sanders, who's a great missions leader. And after 40 years of missions leadership, he wrote this book called Spiritual Maturity. And I thought, I want to be spiritually mature. So I was reading the book. And, but he made the statement in that book, or it might have been his other book, Spiritual Leadership. I don't remember. But here was the statement. He said, every single person is exactly as full of the Holy Spirit as they really want to be. And that began to challenge me because there was areas of my life where stuff was flowing out of my life other than love, joy, peace, patience, the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But it's true. It's based on the promises of God. In the Gospel of Luke, Jesus says, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to everyone who asks him? So the resources are ours, but what we've got to do is make every effort. And then it talks about, it gives us a list of character qualities. I'm not going to talk about all of them right now. I don't have time. But I just want to draw your attention to the first and the last one. Look close. Somebody call it out. What's the first list, the first quality in the list? 
Faith, that's it. Everybody say faith. And then it ends with the crown of all the Christian virtues. Everybody say love. So the, the list starts with faith and ends in love. Now, for the last few weeks, we've been talking about what does it mean to abide. We've basically been saying it means faith and love. It means learning to trust the love of God in Jesus Christ. It means surrendering to God's love. It means believing God wills good for me. And if I'm disobeying him and running away from him, that means I think I can find something better for me than what God wants to give. But that's not true. I don't need to run away from God's love. I can run toward God's love. I can rest in his love. I can surrender to his love. That's faith. And as we begin to love God, our hearts and minds begin to awaken to the beauty of our Savior and Lord, and we begin to love him in return. And then that changes the way that we see the world so that we see the image of God reflected in all of our brothers and sisters. We don't fear people anymore. We don't try to control people anymore. We love people now for Christ's sake. So that's how the Christian life works. Make every effort to grow in faith and a bunch of other stuff and love. Those are put at the beginning and the end on purpose. Faith and love. It's about abiding in love. And then look at verse 8. This is really important. It says, For if these qualities are yours and are increasing. Before we finish the verse, I want you to notice that phrase. You might circle those two words, are yours, and then those two words, are increasing. If you're a Christian, you've already got faith. And you've already got love. You may feel like, I don't know if I have very much of them. Well, you may be right. You may not have very much of them, but remember what Jesus said, it only takes a mustard seed. It only takes a mustard seed. If you've trusted in Christ, then you already have faith and you already have love. But the text says, if they're yours and they're increasing, your capacity to abide in love is growing, then what? Well, the text says, this, verse 8. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What does it mean? It means the healthy, fruitful Christian life is one in which you've already got faith and you've already got love, but they're growing day by day through the gracious empowering of the Holy Spirit as you make decisions day by day to yield to God, to trust God, to love God, to love your neighbor. Now, I want to ask you to think with me about this question for the remaining time that we have together today. What does that look like? What does practice look like in practice? How do you practice? And I'm going to share some ideas with you. Every day, you and I make choices, and those choices shape our souls. You've already made a lot of choices today. And every little choice shapes your soul. Think of how a little trickle of water over a long period of time can carve a valley out of rock. It can carve the Grand Canyon given enough time, right? A little bit of water, little by little. So if I make a choice towards faith or towards unbelief, that's where, either one of those choices is wearing a groove in my soul. If I make a choice towards compassion or towards heartlessness, towards forgiveness or bitterness... My choices are shaping me. Over time, choices become habits. And human nature is such that habits take a lot of work to form, but then they're pretty easy to keep. That's true of good habits. Unfortunately, you may have noticed that's also true of bad habits. But just think for a second about your natural life. When you learn to drive a car, some of you remember, it took a lot of concentration at first, right? Got to look out the windows and which one's the gas pedal and which one's the brake. I can't get that wrong. That's going to be a problem. And 
what does this light mean and what, when can I turn? And you're thinking about it all. And then a few years pass and your brain just does it on automatic, right? Doesn't take the same energy anymore. Think about learning to play an instrument or learning to play a sport. At first, it was really hard and really frustrating and it, it took a grind. And I know that um, on the movies, there's always a training montage and it takes enough time for one inspiring song, right? Just do a bunch of push-ups and sit-ups on the balcony like Rocky and then you're done training. But anybody who's really become a great musician or a great athlete knows that's not how it works. It's not one inspiring training montage, right? It's a thousand little boring choices. You sit down at the piano and you play a scale and you do it for a while and you do it every single day. You go out in the driveway and you shoot free throws. You go to the weight room and you lift weights or whatever it is. And that discipline over time becomes the freedom to do something that would have been impossible for. Discipline leads to freedom. Thomas Aquinas summed it up like this. Habit is second nature. So riding a bike was hard at first and then it became second nature. Now, when we move this from the realm of sports and driving cars and music to the realm of our spiritual life, we could say this, a moral or spiritual bad habit is called a vice. So if you have the vice called a critical spirit, that means you have gotten into a habit of criticizing other people so that it comes naturally to you now. It's second nature. It's easy to criticize other people. You don't have to think about it. On the flip side, a good moral habit is called a virtue. If you have the virtue of generosity, that means over and over again you've made small decisions to give your time, to give your attention, to give some of your emotional capacity or to give your money to other people. And you've done it over and over such that now by the gracious work of the Holy Spirit, it's second nature to you. You do it easily. It comes naturally. When we talk about a person's character, we're not just talking about an isolated decision they made. We're talking about the sum of their vices and virtues. So to have Christ-like character means to choose obedience to the Father consistently until, by the grace of the Holy Spirit, our lives start to look like the life of Jesus. That's how Christian life works. It's not nearly as glamorous as many other things we could be preaching about today. What we're saying is make a thousand small decisions to trust Jesus and love people in the humdrum, morally daily details of your life, and you can become a great saint. That's the message today. A mature saint is a person whose life radiates the power and wisdom of Jesus because they've made a thousand decisions to surrender to love. They've made a thousand decisions instead of giving in to whatever other impulses to come back and rest in love. They've made a thousand decisions to do what honors God, even if it's not what I feel like. They made a thousand decisions to care for another person, even if it's not what I feel like. And they did it, and they did it, and did it until they felt like it. And it became like second nature. Some of us think authenticity means don't do anything unless you feel like it, but that's just confusion. It's just a lie. Authenticity means live like Jesus until you feel like it. That's the path towards authentic human flourishing. The Holy Spirit blesses 10,000 small decisions. Now, here's the truth of what we've been saying. The truth of the gospel is God is already at work in your life and in my life right now. He's doing this in us and through us. As we make every effort, 
day by day so that we have faith and we have love and all the virtues in between. And by the grace of God, little by little, they're increasing. What kinds of choices am I talking about? Well, you made a choice to come and worship God today and hear his word. That was a good choice. Everybody turn to your neighbor and say, good job. That was a small decision of faith, unless you have lots of small children, and then that was a major spiritual victory to, to get here. Lord, I know. Um, so you made a decision to come worship today. It's a small choice. It's a choice that's shaping your soul. If you practice spiritual disciplines, you can practice spiritual disciplines for the wrong reason and just become like a Pharisee. But the purpose of spiritual disciplines like reading your Bible or memorizing scripture or praying is, God, day by day, I want to make little choices to let my thoughts be shaped by your word because there's going to be some script going in my head all day. What did you say at community group this week, Read, I don't actually see Reed in here. But uh, at community group, he, he said this week, you've got something that you've memorized that's playing in your head all day, so it might as well be scripture that you've memorized. So the point of that is I'm letting the truth about God's holiness and his power and his wisdom and his mercy shape me so that I can learn to live by faith. It's little small choices, but it's not just those things that we've learned to label spiritual. Let me tell you about how my kids taught me this a couple weeks ago. So we were having story time. There's actually like, there's at least three distinct tuck-ins in my house right now because of the ages of our kids. But we were having middle kid tuck-in story time. And Zoe and Sophie and Aiden all came and climbed up in the bed with me. I asked their permission to tell the story this morning. They said yes. And there, we were reading our story on mom and dad's bed, which you already know. That's like prime if you get invited, invited onto mom and dad's bed. So they were enjoying that. But even on the bed, there is more prime real estate and less prime real estate. If you're on dad's lap in the middle of the bed, that's prime real estate. The further you are to the edge, um, it, there causes problems. And so there was a little bit of a dispute. There was maybe some sin, some tears going on about the real estate, property dispute. And the kids know there's a policy at my house that dad doesn't get involved in property disputes. But as they were getting all upset about it, I just stopped and said, hey kids, let's think about for a second what we've been learning about lately. Does Jesus teach us that the life that pleases God and, and opens our hearts to God's joy is a life where we demand the best things to ourselves for ourselves? Or does Jesus teach us that the life that pleases God and opens our heart to God's joy and peace is the life where we think, how can I give the best to other people? And they all thought, sat there for a second, they were still, you, you could tell in their face they were thinking about it. And then all at once, all three of them started going like this. Zoe said, Sophia, Aiden, you can have the lap. Sophia said, Zoe, Aiden, you can have the lap. Aiden said, Zoe, Sophia, you can have the lap. And at that moment, they made a choice. It was one little choice, but it was a choice that was opening their hearts to God's grace. And I don't remember who got the lap, but what I do remember is that peace and joy presided over the rest of our tuck-in time. God was at work. Or, I've been thinking about my friend Ethel. I also asked her permission to tell this story. Jeff Garris and I go out to Oak Creek Apartments to do an adult Bible study on um, Wednesdays. And we were having Bible study, and all three of the adults from the apartments that came and joined us that day were telling stories. They all have very very difficult lives and have very difficult things going on in their lives right now. Major physical health problems, lots of financial challenges, relational challenges. It's just been tough. And so as they were sharing and we were getting ready to read God's word, we said, hey, I want to bring all these burdens to God in prayer, but also why don't we take a moment to think about a way that God has blessed us that we can thank God for. And a couple people shared some things, but Ethel thought about it for a while. She didn't answer right away. And then later, over the course of Bible study, she answered. And she said, I want to give thanks to God 
that this last week, he did what he always does, that when I'm really, really down in the dumps, he sends somebody to really encourage me and bless me. And I thought, okay, Ethel, tell us that story. How did God do that for you? I thought, I don't know what I thought. I had, had some guesses in my mind about what this story was going to be. How God sent somebody to encourage her when she was down in the dumps. She said, last week, there was a woman that I met who was homeless. And she didn't have anywhere to stay. And I just felt uh, so bad for her. And she, she was really desperate. She was really having a hard time. So I invited her to her home. And she came and stayed with me for a while. But she's got some mental health things. And there's a lot of things going on in her life. And she was being really loud. And because of her mental health, she was just yelling, yelling, yelling. And I had to tell her, you know, you can't stay here if you're going to keep yelling, 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 yelling. You have to stop doing it. And then she got mad at me. And she bit my finger. Look, you can hear, or you can see the mark in my finger where she bit me. And that was the end of the story. And I was trying to figure out if she forgot and told me a different story or what was happening. But then I asked some clarifying questions and Ethel explained And she said, yes, a lot of times when I'm really down in the dubs, God will send me somebody to love. And if I will help take care of them, God will bring me out of my discouragement and show me his joy. And I said, Ethel, you're saying some really deep truths right now. She said, no, I'm just telling you my life experience. But that that was what this text is about. I could keep going. A couple weeks ago, uh, out at one of the other apartment complexes where I lead Bible study, a bunch of people have moved out and then COVID happened and we couldn't reach. I've, been, I've had a hard time reconnecting with the new people that have moved in. And I asked my community group for help and my community group joyfully uh, said, yeah, we'll come help. And some people that are already busily, busy out doing their own ministry things came and some people that have never done something like this came, but they all gave up their time to come serve um, out in an apartment complex to throw a block party. We met a lot of people, got to share the gospel. It was a great win because they were practicing faith. They were practicing love. What I'm saying is there's small decisions day by day by day that we make. And the message of Second Peter chapter 1 is, if in dependence upon the Holy Spirit and the grace of God, we'll make a thousand decisions to believe the word of God rather than the lies of the devil, to pour out our hearts to the Lord in faith, to trust his promises, to open our hearts to other people, then day by day the Holy Spirit will teach us to be people that abide in his love. And one of the little choices we can make day by day is to take the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is an invitation in which God is saying to us once again, my love is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient to you. Come to me confessing your sins and I'll come to you forgiving your sins. Come to me with your weakness and I'll come to you with my strength. So with that in mind, would you bow your head with me and let's say a word of prayer that God would strengthen us by grace as we take the Lord's Supper together. Our Father in heaven, I do thank you for the radical words of encouragement from Scripture that we've read today. That in our quest to become people who know you and trust you and love you, we don't walk with finite resources you give us infinite help. So we confess that you are our helper. Would you forgive us for the times that we've chosen unbelief instead of faith, we've chosen selfishness instead of love? And would you renew us now by your Holy Spirit? Bless the bread, bless the cup. As we come to the Lord's Supper, open our hearts to be renewed again by the memory that you have loved us even in the depths of our sin. 
and nothing can separate us from your love, that we would taste the sweetness of that love so that we would rather spend our lives abiding in your love than doing anything else. Pray it in Jesus' name, amen.